So some leaders are near impossible to follow. There are some leaders that you just don't want to be the next guy up. You don't want to be president after George Washington. You don't want to be the guy who replaces Michael Jordan. It's tough to step into the shoes of a living legend. It's tough to preach last week after Mrs. Niemeyer's given her testimony. I felt like, Lord bless you and keep you, let's all go home, right, you know? Um, what, a, what a great experience that was. Uh, and this is the position in many ways that Elisha finds himself in as we pick up our text in Second Kings chapter 2. Elijah, his predecessor, has been an absolute lion of a man. He has almost single-handedly opposed Israel's godless leadership. He has performed countless miracles and he has held God's word to the lips of the people that they might drink and find hope. And then the time comes for Elijah to leave, and he doesn't even die. Heavenly chariots swing low to carry him home, and he disappears in a whirlwind up into heaven, one of only two men never to go through the bitterness of death. And we're left standing with Elisha, literally in the dust, gazing up into heaven, sure that this man is a hard act to follow. But then in 2 Kings chapter 2, God appears. And he does three things to remind us that he follows no man because he is the center of the story. The narrative of the Bible and indeed of our lives revolves around him. Let's look at these three things together. The first of them really comes in verses 1 through 18. I preached in this text Uh, A year or so ago, if you'd like more on this passage, you can check it out online. But the theme for today that I want to highlight is that these verses make clear that though Elijah is gone, God's power remains. Though Elijah is gone, God's power remains. And this is really emphasized in the events that take place at the Jordan River. Remember, we were there just last week, watching as the waters parted and Joshua led his people through on dry ground. Now, some 500 years later, uh, the same thing happens again. Look with me at verse 8. Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them, that's Elijah and Elisha, can go over on dry ground. This miracle is repeated. And we don't wait another 500 years to see it happen again. We wait about 15 minutes until verse 14, where we read that Elisha took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Israel? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Elisha retraces the footsteps that are still on the riverbed back to the other side of the Jordan. What's the point? The point is that God's power is not limited to one era, to one leader. God's power remains. The God who parted the waters is the God who did it again. His arm did not atrophy between Joshua and Elijah. And his arm did not atrophy between Elijah and Elisha. And his arm has not atrophied since It was strong in the Bronze Age for Joshua, and it was strong in the Iron Age for Elijah and Elisha, and it is strong in the Digital Age for us 
here today. It has not weathered, it has not weakened, it has not deteriorated in any way. The historical God of the Bible that we're reading about is the contemporary God of today. God's power remains. Now, I don't know about you, but I need to hear that word this morning. I need to hear that word this morning because as believers, we find it so easy to fall into a sort of wistful passivity. We look back to the past, perhaps to passages like this, perhaps to great moments in Christian history, perhaps just to those moments in our own lives when we felt more alive to God, when the gospel animated us and we were ready to serve and even sacrifice because of his grace. And this passage serves as a newsflash to us, that God has moved on from the past. God is now working in the present and he is looking to the future. And this gives me hope in those dry seasons when each day seems to run into the other and I don't seem to be making much progress at all. That God is not sitting on the sidelines but is on the move working in his perfect time. And this gives me hope in those fearful seasons when the anxiety of life or the unknown threatens to overwhelm us. We are reminded that this historical God is still in control as he has been for all of our yesterdays and as he will be for all of our tomorrows. And this gives us hope in those painful seasons when loneliness hurts and marriages fail and children rebel and employment stutters and health fails. We can be assured that the waters will part and we'll find life on the other side. This passage comes and reminds us that the power of God is alive and well after Elijah, and the power of God is alive and well after Elisha. Where do you need his powerful hand this morning? I pray that God would give us faith to see that though these servants have gone, God's power remains. The second thing we see in our text really comes from verses 19 through 22. And here we see that though Elijah is gone, God's power remains, but his grace also remains. God's grace also remains. And this is an important moment because Elijah has been used by God to call the people back into relationship with himself. And so the question now arises, how will God deal with his people in this new administration under this new leadership? Elisha, we know, is at Jericho from verse 18. And this location is important. The city has problems with its water supply so that the land is, verse 19, unfruitful. In verse 21, we see that the problem is actually much more serious than just unfertile soil, that there's something lethal in the water supply and it's, it's causing fatalities. The people drink to the death of themselves, their unborn children, and presumably their cattle as well. How did things get so bad in Jericho? Let's back up again those 500 years to Joshua. 
After Joshua led the people through the Jordan into the promised land, God delivered this city of Jericho into their hands. And you remember the scene perhaps in Joshua chapter 6. It's a a famous Bible story where the Lord gives them this battle plan. They're to march around the city carrying the Ark of the Covenant and they're to blow on their trumpets and they're to cry out with loud shouts. And the Israelites must have thought, and certainly those at Jericho must have thought, that this is the worst battle plan in history. And so it was to highlight that it is the Lord who intervenes. And in a moment, the walls begin to crumble. Uh, The city falls apart. The Israelites rush in and destroy it for its wickedness. Destroy it for its rebellion and its evil. Everyone there except, of course, Rahab and her family because of her faithfulness to the Lord. And amidst the rubble of Jericho, very last verses of that chapter, Joshua utters a curse. He says, a curse upon anyone who would dare to rebuild this place that the Lord had condemned. Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. This place is evil and wicked and has faced judgment and no one is to rebuild it. Fast forward to within Elisha's lifetime and we find a contractor who takes this curse as a challenge. In 1 Kings chapter 16, we read that in Ahab's days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He rebuilds this condemned city. And indeed, he laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his second son, Zagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Two tombstones now stand as evidence that Jericho is a town under a curse. And isn't that profound context for what we find happening here in 2 Kings chapter 2? Elisha gets a bowl, has some salt in it. He goes to the water source, the, the, the place from which the people drink, and he throws the salt in. In verse 21, he says, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. And immediately the water is healed, and the people, nor their children, nor their cattle die any longer. The point of all this, the city that deserved a curse now receives the blessing of grace. The city under a curse now receives this blessing of grace. And is this not a window into how God deals with his people in the scriptures? That are people who deserve to be cursed are instead blessed with his grace. Of course, this is fulfilled for us in Christ. Romans 6 at 23, the wages of sin is death. The curse that we have deserved is death. And yet, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Through the cross, he has provided water to satisfy our souls. And again, this gives me hope. There is no gospel like this. There is no religion like this. As you look back on the mistakes of your past, as you look back and remember the impurity, the abortion, the unfaithfulness, the selfishness or the deception and the pride, as you consider those sin-twisted and knowingly rebellious decisions that you have made, as you reflect upon how in your life you have brought harm to yourself 
and harm toward those you love. Don't you need a gospel like this? A gospel that says, whatever it is this morning, that makes you slow to enter into God's presence or cast a shadow over your Christian experience. Whatever it is that hovers over your conscience like a cloud, whispering that there's no way back for someone like you. Whatever it is that has convinced you that God may tolerate you, but he can never truly delight in you again. The gospel says he takes people who deserve a curse and he blesses them with grace. He blesses us with grace. Where do you need to rest in this grace this morning? That God would give us the faith to believe that though Elijah has gone, his power and his grace remain. Third and finally, let's give our attention to verses 23 through 25. Now, clearly, this is one of those sections of Scripture that when you read it as the preacher, you think, I wonder if I don't talk about it, if anyone will notice, you know? I wonder if we just sort of slide on by and, okay, chapter 3, right? Um, <laughs> as a preacher of the Word, that option is not available to me, and so we will dive in together. And really, I think the point that is made in these verses is a simple one, and that's that as God's power remains and as God's grace remains, though Elijah is gone, God's judgment also remains. God's judgment also remains. This perhaps seems like a strange thing to bring up in light of all I've just said about grace, but we know that whenever we're faithful to the Bible, we'll see that God's grace is so beautiful precisely because the alternative is a deserved Judgment, And we see this here in verses 23 through 25. I've no doubt it sounds strange to our modern ears, but I think the details, if we dive into the details, we'll see this, this larger point. First, notice with me the setting in verse 23. Elisha is on his way to Bethel, the town to which these adolescents belong. Now, Bethel is famous for being the center, the very center of idolatrous worship. It is the place where the people worship golden calves under the leadership of corrupt priests. It is a place that is known for its wickedness. And so when we read of youths from this town mocking none other than God's prophet, we assume that there are religious overtones, that there is more to this than some friendly teasing. Second, note from verse 23 again, the taunt. First, they tell Elisha to go up. Now, this is shorthand for saying, go on up and get out of town. As you have made your way up to Bethel, keep on going and march right on out the other side. Second, they call him bald head. Very careful to make eye contact with no one, right? (laughs) Um, Now, Elisha, at this point... um, (laughs) Elisha, at this point in the story, is is a younger man, so it's actually unlikely that he himself was bald. What's more likely is that he has shaved his head as part of the common prophetic practice. So these young men aren't mocking him for his haircut. They're, they're, They're mocking him for his devotion to God. And when you put these two ideas together, you see that their words are designed to pour scorn upon God's prophet, making clear that they want nothing to do with him or the God that he represents. Thirdly, notice with me the result in verse 24. 
Elisha curses them in the name of the Lord and said, we read that two she-bears come out of the woods and tear up 42 of the boys. This seems completely random until we remember Leviticus 26. Who remembers Leviticus 26? <laughs> the guy who has to preach on this finds out about Leviticus 26. That's it. Leviticus 26 is a very actually important chapter in Scripture where God lays out the punishment, the covenant curses, the covenant punishment that will fall upon people who are willfully disobedient and live in rebellion against him. What will be the fate of those who reject him and his grace? And then in Leviticus 26, verse 22, we read, I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. So this episode is not the explosion of some capricious temper, but is the forewarned punishment of rebellious idolaters who have rejected their God. What are we to make of this? The larger context uh, brings the main point into view. Elisha is God's prophet endowed with God's power, verses 1 through 18, to speak God's word of grace, verses 19 through 22, and his word of judgment, verses 23 through 25. In depicting this scene, understand that God is not merely resorting to some sort of scare tactic, but he is confronting us with reality. That God offers us grace upon grace, but we must not think that all will be well if we continue to reject him. If we live in rebellion against him, if we refuse the forgiveness he offers, the author of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? How shall we escape? Our culture, of course, prefer to paint God as a spineless grandfather in the sky who agrees with our every whim, but the Bible presents us with something different presents us with a God who is just and so does not allow sin to go unpunished. And every sin ever committed, all my sin and yours, will be dealt with in one of two places. Either by Christ upon the cross or by ourselves in a lost eternity. Again, the author of Hebrews says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Grace is so beautiful precisely because It comes against the alternative of deserved judgment. We understand that we are the ones who have lived in willful disobedience and therefore we are the ones who deserve the covenant curses of Leviticus 26 and deserve it to be torn apart. And yet God has sent his own son to be torn apart on our behalf that we might instead receive grace from his hand. This passage warns us to accept that grace by highlighting the alternative. And our Father longs for us to rest in that gracious embrace. Though Elijah has gone, God's judgment remains that God would give us faith to respond accordingly. So the passage draws to a close. The sermon draws to a close. Though Elijah is gone, Everything else remains. God's power, God's grace, God's judgment. Alive with Elisha and alive with us here today. Our God 
is alive. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is not just a collection of stories from days long ago, but is rather the true account of how you interacted with your people then. And it teaches us about how you still interact with us, your people, now. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to believe in your power, that you would enable us to respond to your grace, that you would enable us to flee to the cross from your judgment, that we might indeed rest in the gospel that is ours. Father, we all need a different word from this text. Some of us need to be challenged of our pride. Some of us need to be warmed from our fears. All of us need to see Jesus. And so in a way that far surpasses anything I or any man could ever do, would you seal the truth of your word upon our hearts and upon our consciences? And Lord, would you cause anything that has been said that is not in line with your word to be forgotten to the uttermost? Fix our eyes on Christ and enable us to rest in him, we pray. Amen.